If you, um, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 6. We were in our series here, Lessons from the book of Genesis, and we've looked at creation right out of the gate. We looked at how God was a creator God and a triune God, things that we needed to understand and know uh, for our lives as, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. We looked at the fall of mankind with Adam and Eve. We looked at Cain and Abel last week. Um, and this week, we're going to look um, at probably one of my favorite accounts in the book of Genesis, uh, the story of Noah and the ark. Now, before we begin to read here, um, I would like to uh, very, very, very briefly, um, I would like to read to you um, a single verse uh, from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says this, By faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this place right now, Lord, and we ask of you to bless this time that we have as, as your truth goes forth. God, help us to see something fresh and something new from a very familiar passage of Scripture. God, help us to not... Stiff arm the Holy Spirit in this place. Help us to have ears to hear. Help us to have moldable and pliable hearts in this place as we begin to navigate uh, what it means to respond to truth, to be obedient to it, and the blessings that follow it. And I ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This is probably, without a doubt, one of the most beloved accounts in the Bible. I remember back as a child that, that, that we would hear about um, the story of Noah and the ark and you'd see children with their little plastic animals and, and a toy boat. You would think to yourself, uh, these animals marched two by two, as I was told in Sunday school as a kid. And we, we would have these little, these toy animals and this, this show that was put on before us. And we hear in this, this story that the rains came. And as I began to get older, I, I pictured Noah and his family huddled in this tiny, cramped little space, surrounded by elephants and walruses and giraffes whose long necks would jut out some opening inside the boat. But the account of Noah, the account of the ark, is more than just a children's story that was told in Sunday school. It's a true story about God's rage, about God's righteousness. It's a true story uh, about, about salvation, about damnation, but perhaps most of all, a story of faith. A story of faith. I want us to read, starting in Genesis chapter 6, and we'll start in verse number 1. It says, And when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives and any that they chose. Now, uh, this morning, before we dive too deep into this, I need us to understand that during these days of rapid expansion in the population, there was a problem here that we see right out of the gate in chapter 6. There was an ungodly intermarriage between the sons of God and the daughters of man. Now, I need us to understand that that phrase, the sons of God, clearly refer or refers to us as angelic creatures. Uh, the translators of the Septuagint of the Old Testament translate that phrase as fallen angels or those who are demons, those who fell with Satan. And so these sons 
of, of God uh, were talked a little bit more in the book of Jude. Uh, before we get to the book of Revelation, Jude tells us of these angels who did not keep their proper domain. It says they left their habitation and they sinned in a similar manner to those given, having given themselves over to immorality and gone after strange flesh, meaning that the demonic presence tried to mate with human women. That's what we're seeing here in the days of Noah. Now here in Genesis chapter 6, as well as Sodom and Gomorrah, we see this again. There was an unnatural sexual union that occurred here in the Bible. Now, as believers, we have to understand that the occult is filled with sexual associations that are demonic. And, and, and we see, unfortunately, we see those today who are actively trying to pursue such associations, still today. Now, Satan here, for just a moment, is trying to pollute the genetic pool of mankind with corruption. We, we saw... In, in Genesis chapter 3, the first gospel that was to come out, that the seed of woman was going to come to redeem man, and now we see Satan trying to pollute it, to make human race unfit for bringing forth the seed of this woman, the Messiah, the promise from Genesis 3.15. Now I want us to continue on in verse number 3, and it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. And his days shall be 120 years. Now, real quick, I want you to note that that 120 years is going to be the time in which the flood will come. This was not to say that man would die at 120 years. We see men live beyond this point. But God is saying, in 120 years from now, I will bring the flood. And he says that the Nephilims were on the earth in those days and afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now God did not allow the human race to stay in a rebellious place forever. He, he's saying there is coming a point to us now that there is going to be a point of no return in our rejection of God. And God, uh, please know, Believer, non-believer, Christian in this place, follower of God. God is not going to woo us forever. He's not. There, there's going to be a point where he will say no more. Um, we, we are living now in what I'm going to call a dispensation of grace or a time period of grace. But that time period is going to come to an end. And it's all the more reason for us to say today is going to be the day that we will respond to Jesus instead of waiting for another day. There was a young lady in our youth ministry in Florida um, before we came here. It was several years ago now. And we were sitting in a summer camp. And she, um, she saw that, that her peers were coming forward as an altar call was made. And teen after teen after teen after teen stepped forward, came forward to give their life to Christ or to rededicate themselves. And, and I was sitting next to one of our, our lady leaders, and we began to talk to this young lady. And we began to share the gospel with her in a way that was maybe less aggressive than what she had just heard. She, she was very turned off by the things of God. And I remember her looking us dead in the eyes and telling us, I'm going into my senior year of high school. I just want to have fun, and then I will give myself to Christ. I want to wait until my senior year is over so that it's not spoiled by being a Christian. Three weeks later, 
her father and her were riding on a motorcycle two blocks from their home and they were killed, both of them. We had a double funeral at our church and my, myself and our leaders had to sit with our, our youth ministry about that time of about 100 teenagers and had to explain to them the possibility that she probably wound up in hell. There was no life change in that three-week period. There's nothing that she came to us and said. People, there is a moment, church, there is a moment that we can say today is going to be the day that we give ourselves over to Christ. We begin to live submissive to him, submissive to his truth. Don't, don't be like that young lady. Don't be like that young lady. Why? Because we're not promised any other day than today. We're, we're not promised Let's look at verse number five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of the, of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That's saying a lot about the people that lived in Noah's day. There was no aspect of man's nature that was not corrupt by sin. Let's look at verse number six. And it says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now I want us to pause here for just a moment. God's sorrow at man and the grief in his heart is very striking to me. As I study this passage of scripture, I need us to know that this does not mean that creation was out of control or out of God's control. Nor does it mean that God hoped for something better but was unable to achieve it. Now God knew all along that this is how things would turn out. But our text clearly shows us and tells us that God sees his plan for the ages unfold and it's affecting him. It's affecting him. So the first thing I want you to write down, notate this morning, is God is not unfeeling in the face of human sin and rebellion. God is not unfeeling in the face of human sin and rebellion. Let's look at what happens in verse number 8. But it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know, while God commanded in this moment to, to, to cleanse the pollution of the earth, he found one man with whom to begin again. This, this man, Noah, is that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor there comes from the Hebrew word chaknan, and it means grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord is what, what we see here. Now, I need us to know that Noah did not earn that grace. He found it. He didn't earn it. He found it. It was true then, just as much it is true now what Paul said in Romans 5, but where sin abounds, grace abounds more. This is what we see here is a picture already of the abundance of God's, the, the boundlessness of God's grace. So in a world of corruption, in a world of chaos, Noah was different because of his faith. And by taking a look at this familiar account, 
I want us to discover, though, how Noah's faith unveils itself in his life and his love for God. So the first thing I want us to see up, up to this point is that Noah believed. Noah believed. You know, I, I don't mean that Noah merely believed in God. Of course he believed in God. But Noah's faith went beyond intellectual assent. He, he believed that God meant what he said. He, he believed that he could and that he would destroy the entire world with a catastrophic, a global flood that was about to come. And he believed God in spite of the influences of the world around him. He still believed I want you to, to try for just a moment with me, church, to put yourselves in the shoes of Noah. I want you to try to imagine living in a world that by God's estimation was consistently and totally evil. Now, at first blush, as, as Christians, right? At first blush, we might think that this is a description of modern America. But trust me, Noah had it far worse than we do. Far worse. We, we have our share of corrupt politicians. We have our share of corrupt entertainers and, and supposed role models who allow their fame and their popularity to corrupt their morals and their integrity. Yes, we do have that. But in Noah's day, he and his family alone had any sort of relationship with God. He and his family alone. Imagine with me for just a moment that you were the only person sitting in church today. The only person. And I'm not talking just in this church. I'm talking imagine you are the only person in church in anywhere in the world. Just you. Just you and your family. That's it. That's what was going on in Noah's day. It was not easy for him to go against the grain. It was not easy for him to stand in his faith and believe, to, to make a decision to follow after God when everyone else in the whole world has turned their backs against him. He still followed. Even so much so that if we go back and read in Genesis chapter 2, we know that the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, but that the mist came up from the ground to water the crops and the plants. We know that rain was never even heard of. It was a permanent situation in which the early people found themselves in. Rain had not fallen Church, rain had not fallen on the earth from the time of creation up until the time of the flood, but rather underground springs provided an uninterrupted cycle of water so that they could eat, they could plant crops, that things would grow. And so for Noah, building a massive boat, especially so far from a large body of water, is one thing. But preparing for a flood when the earth had never even heard of rain is plain crazy absolute crazy talk about questioning somebody's sanity in that one moment of time but it took a great deal of faith it took a great deal of courage for Noah to follow God when everyone else in the world was going in the opposite direction now there is a man who knows all too well about going in one direction and everybody else going in the, the, a different direction. So I'd like you to turn your attention to the screens for a picture. This is a man by the name of Mike Delcavo. 
Some of you may have heard of this man, but if not, I would like to share with you a brief story about this man. He was an NCAA cross-country champion, and he was running in a championship race held in Riverside, California, when 123 out of the 128 runners missed the final turn. They missed the final turn. Now one competitor, Mike, here, turned the right way, staying on the 10,000 meter course. And he began to wave fellow runners to follow him. Wave. But he was only able to convince four people. Out of 127 others, he was only able to convince four people. He made it to the end of the race first. And his competitors were asked him, about his mid-race decision not to follow the crowd and how people responded to it. And he said, they all laughed at me and thought I was funny because I went the right way. That's how he responded. They laughed and thought I was funny because I went the right way. It took courage for Mike to go the right way when everyone else was going the wrong way. It took courage for Noah to do what was right when everyone else was doing what was wrong. It took faith to keep going despite the laughter of the crowd. Do you know, being right rarely means being popular. And, and faith requires us to believe and trust in God, often in spite of popular opinion. I believe it was William Penn, Quaker from England, that said right is right even if everybody's against it, and wrong is wrong even if everybody's for it. I want you to put that quote on the screen. I want you to mark it down. I, I want you to, to keep it with you. Right is right, even if everybody's against it, and wrong is wrong, even if everybody's for it. William Penn. So Noah believed in God. But the second way that Noah's faith was unveiled was that Noah built. Noah built. I want us to look. Let's look at verse number... 14. And it says this, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it um, to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on the side. Make it with a lower, a second, and a third deck. There's instructions here from God. God was very specific about the command to Noah to build this ark. God even told him, take this large boat, waterproof this gopher wood, and make sure it's got tar inside and outside to make sure no water gets through it. Construct the deck and the stalls throughout its interior. He wanted this boat to be 450 feet long. He wanted it to be 75 foot wide. He wanted it 45 foot high. He said to leave an 18 inch open below the roof all the way around the boat. Put the door on the side. Build the decks. These were very specific commands of God. But today, sadly, we are so familiar with this account that sometimes we miss the magnitude of this project. We miss it. How many of you in here have ever been to the Ark Encounter? Like a few of you. Um, you guys were blown away when you saw the, the brevity of that situation, right? When you pulled up, the ark encounter was this. Noah was asked by God to build an ark shaped like a barge. 
One that was taller than a four-story building. It was as long and wide as one and a half football fields. Do you know China and maybe a few other nations around the globe have built ships of equal or smaller size up until the year the 1400s, somewhere in there. But there was no other boat that was constructed that ever exceeded the size of the ark until the late 1800s. No boat exceeded its size. There are countless critics, though, of the Bible that come right to this story and they try to dismiss the flood as some simple and and small local flood that devastated only a confined area of civilization. That sort of historical revisionism flies in the face of what God's word tells us, a direct opposition to what we know God intended to destroy every living thing. All the people, all the animals, the small animals, those on on the ground, even the birds of the sky. We know that the floods would continue to rise over top of the mountains. You know what I found unique though in in my years of, of study and my years of of having to write paper after paper about this this portion of Scripture, one of the things that I have found fascinating is that the worldwide nature of the Genesis flood is attested to by more than 270 ancient historical records belonging to cultures all over the world. And yet people still see it as false. These ancient records contain very slightly varied versions of this biblical account, but they come from cultures as far away as China, Hawaii, the Toltec Indians of Mexico, and even ancient Babylon itself has a record of this flood. So there should be no doubt in the mind of a believer that this was, in fact, a global flood. Others have claimed that a boat, even as big as Noah's Ark, could never have carried two of every kind of animal on the earth for over a year. But I wanted to point out just two quick facts about Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark had the space of 1,396,000 cubic feet. That is more than 533 railroad, individual railroad cars. So next time you're somewhere where they actually still run trains, try to count to 533 and take, see how long it, you probably won't because there are trains that don't travel with that many cars anymore. But it's astronomical. The the dimensions uh, of Noah's ark that God provided were so important. Noah and his family were more than likely experiencing rough waters and even tidal waves while Noah and his family were in the ark. But God designed such stability that even in unstable conditions they would have survived. If Noah, for one moment, ignored any of God's instructions, they would have ended up at the bottom Of the ocean. But the main point at all of this is that Noah had faith. He believed. And because he believed, he obeyed God in every single detail. Every detail, even down to the smallest. It was Hebrews 11.7 that I read at the very beginning to emphasize the fact that Noah in faith built. He He, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. He followed along because he had a fear of God. There was a man, uh, any, any sports fans in here? How many of you like football? Okay, a handful of you. There was a man by the name of Roger Staubach 
Um, He was a man who was the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys in in the early 70s. Um, This this man also led the Cowboys to uh, a victory in the Super Bowl in 1971. Roger admitted that his position as the quarterback um, who didn't call his own signals was a source of trial for him. He didn't get to call his own place. He said his coach, Coach Landry, would send in every single play from the sideline. He told Roger when to run. He told Roger when to pass. He told Roger who to pass the ball to. He told him which way to turn, which way to go. Every single play was called by Coach Landry. Now, Roger said Coach Landry had a genius mind when it came to football strategy. But he said, my pride told me that I should be able to run my own plays. Later on in that same season, which led to them going to the Super Bowl, Roger said, I had to face up to the issue of obedience. I didn't want to obey. And he said, but the moment that I learned to obey my coach, there was harmony. There was fulfillment. There was victory because I obeyed. You know, Noah may have even been tempted to call his own place. Noah, as a sinner, probably struggled as we all do with wanting to do things our own way or wanting to make our own decisions. But real faith means that we're willing to trust and obey to do things God's way no matter what it is. We're doing it God's way. You know, we, we may never, ever understand exactly why God wants us to be baptized or why God wants us to give to the local church, but God said that we should, so as followers, we should obey. God, God may never explain to us why, why we have to love our neighbor, even when we feel like we don't want to. We may never understand why we have to be kind-hearted to one another, but God said it, so we as followers should obey it. Obedience is just a part of having faith. Obedience is just a part of having faith. And when we learn to believe, and when we learn to build or obey, as Noah did, then we will be like Noah, and the last thing I want us to see is we'll be blessed. We'll be blessed. You know, when it was all said and done, when the rain stopped, when the waters receded, when the ark ran aground, the Bible says this, if you would turn with me over to Genesis chapter 8. And it says this in verse number 20. So they're leaving the ark. The ark has run aground. Look at what it says in verse 20. It says, Then Noah built an ark, or an altar, sorry, to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And look at verse number one of chapter nine. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You know, Noah's first act after leaving the ark was to worship God through sacrifice. It was sacrifice. His gratitude, his admiration of God's greatness led him to worship. 
That's exactly what he did. And, and, and I sit here and I think about how this has got to be absolutely insane. Noah gets out of the ark with his family. And the very first thing that he does is sacrifice, offer up clean animals and clean birds to God. Do you know, as is the nature of true sacrifice, this was a costly offering to God. It was costly. Noah risked extinction by sacrificing clean animals unto the Lord. So he sacrificed some of each. But we must not miss this morning that costly sacrifice is pleasing to God. Costly sacrifice is pleasing to God. Costly sacrifice does not please God because God is greedy and he wants to get something from us. But costly sacrifice is pleasing to God because God himself sacrificed at a great cost. He gave his son. He wants costly sacrifice from us because it shows that we're being conformed into the image of Jesus who was the greatest display of sacrifice. Jesus. I believe it was Paul saying it quite well as he always did in Ephesians 5.2 saying that we should be like Jesus in this regard and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. My prayer leading up to this my prayer for us as a church, is that we would be like David, who said in 2 Samuel that I will never offer to God that which costs me nothing. I'll never offer to God that which costs me nothing. You know, following the sacrifice, following the worship, God places a rainbow in the sky as a sign of his new covenant with humanity, and blessing follows. You know, the primary substance of Noah's blessing was that he would be blessed with children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, enough to repopulate the earth. You know that there are some parents today that see their children as a curse. But the Bible always, always depicts children as a blessing from the Lord. The Bible always shows it as a sign of his divine favor upon upon whoever it is you know it breaks um, it breaks my heart as a as a, a husband and a family that have lost a child it breaks my heart to think about all of the baby boys and the baby girls who are who are throughout the world have been made to taste death before they were even allowed to draw their first breath it breaks my heart as a lover of God to know that someone would want to strip the image of God away from an innocent life. You know, in America, more than 2 million abortions occur every single year. Here in America alone. And yet, uh, a Jewish couple in the Middle East who was acquainted with God would never have considered aborting a child. Ever. Never. They, they, they would see it as a blessing that came specifically from God himself because that's what his word shows us. And yet we choose to allow things like this in our culture and it wrecks me every single, every single stinking time I think about the abortion right here in our culture. It blows my mind 
that somebody would want to ruin the innocence of a child, someone who's created in the image of God. And we as believers are to stand up for those truths, church. Noah's experience here was one in when he did what was right in the face of everyone else doing what was wrong. The flood came and it it brings to the surface a, a biblical principle here for us. Belief coupled with obedience leads to blessing. Belief coupled with obedience leads to blessing. Now I'm not, please, please, please hear me. I'm not saying that if you have enough faith, and I'm not saying that if if you speak certain words that you're going to receive everything that you ever wanted. That's not how this works. That's not how the Bible teaches. Because faith, no matter how strong it is, does not ever guarantee prosperity. Never. Not even a little bit. You know, Abraham Lincoln once said, faith is not believing that God can, but that God will. Unfortunately, Abraham and many people today, Abraham Lincoln and many people today have that completely backwards. Genuine faith recognizes the sovereignty of God, although he certainly can bless us in the ways that we may want. That doesn't necessarily mean that he will bless you the way that you want. That doesn't mean that. In other words, genuine faith is faith in God, not faith in faith. We're having a faith in God that he is going to fulfill our every need. You know, many men and women mentioned in Hebrews 11 were penniless. They were persecuted prisoners who experienced very painful deaths. These men and women here in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith set an example for us as believers. Their lives were not characterized by prosperity, but by perseverance. That's what their lives were characterized by. But unfortunately, this message will never sell well in our self-indulgent culture. Never. You know, Nonetheless, we as believers need to be glad that our Heavenly Father decides what's best for us and not for ourselves. Man, only God truly knows and understands the full breadth of what we need. And one could only shudder to think of what would happen if God gave us every single thing that we clamored for. I I don't wish, however, to be misunderstood this morning. I believe wholeheartedly in divine healing because I've seen it before my eyes. I've seen it in my own life just in the last month. The doctors were not sure if I was going to make any progress with my cancer and the tumor has shrunk in half in 30 days. I've seen it in my own life. I know that God can heal. I know that God will. I've seen it in other people's lives and people around me. I've watched people at our previous church who were on their deathbed and they were saying that they weren't going to live because of of a brain tumor. And we've spent time praying for those people. And I've seen God do miraculous things in the lives of other people. And so I believe wholeheartedly that God can and he will still heal people. I believe also that God's provision comes for every detail of our lives. I believe these things. But in addition, I do not associate piety with poverty ever. 
Never do I do that. And I thank God for those that he has chosen to prosper who dedicate the using of their treasures for the extension of God's kingdom. I thank God for those people. But there are so many, what I'm going to call word of faith teachers, where they have made healing and prosperity so important that they guarantee that it's going to happen. They guarantee that it's going to come. And in doing so, they've exalted man's faith and completely shattered the sovereignty of God. They've led people astray. Church, all faith is subsumed under the overarching biblical doctrine of the sovereignty of God. All faith. Every single thing. The creator, the creator God is the Lord of the universe. He is not some cosmic genie that's being beckoned and called by creation. One of the things that we have to understand and what we must never forget is our faith is not the one that sits on the throne of heaven. God, sovereign God sits on the throne of heaven. So what does it mean though? What does it mean that belief and obedience leads to God's blessing? What what can we take away from that for our lives? How can we apply it? Simply put, I would say this, that when we put our faith in God, God will always work things out in the end for our good, but so much more for his glory. So much more for his glory. You know, the Bible tells us in Romans 8, 28, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. You know, God may not always bless us the way that we want, but he promises to work everything out for our good. And I have learned time and time again over 13, almost 14 years of ministry that God's ways are way higher than mine. It's way deeper. His his love and His grace is way deeper than mine could ever be. And I have to remind myself quite often when my wife and I sat um, and I received my cancer diagnosis. I had to sit with my wife and our children and I had to remind myself as I do every day and I I have learned over the last three or four months that um, we had to take a step back and, and think about what was truly important in our lives. What were we investing in what, could, what can we stop doing and invest more in to glorify God to a greater degree? And in that process of, of prayer and studying and reading my Bible and spending time together talking, I, I've come to this realization that the greatest blessing that I have received in my life is not my wife, it's not my children, all, all four of them, as, as beautiful as they are and as beautiful as I see them as blessings. It's not my family, it's not this church, it's not the money that, that I use to support. The greatest blessing that I've been given in my life is salvation through Jesus Christ. And every single day, we need to speak the gospel to ourselves, church. We need to remind ourselves of the truth that is spoken about us in the word of God. And we must never, ever forget the salvation that comes through Christ alone. Our faith 
right? We've been saved by grace through faith, that it was a gift, a free gift of God, that it was not a work of man because that we would all boast about getting ourselves to heaven. But the greatest blessing that that we have, church, is the blessing of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And and the events that we see here related to Noah's Ark and, and the flood are such a beautiful picture of how God provided salvation in the face of certain destruction. There was a personal invitation by God by to Noah and his family, come into the ark. I will close the door. I will protect you. You know that there are three arks spoken about in the Bible. Three arks. We see one in Exodus. The ark of the bulrushes, the thing that protected Moses as he floated down the river. We see the ark of the covenant was the very presence of God that protected the Israelites when they had it with them. And we see now the ark here, Noah's ark. Three pictures, beautiful pictures of God and his saving grace. But I want us to see something. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to jump over now. And I want to read to us as we close here from the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. And it says this in verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, it's not that we, Peter is not saying here that we or Noah and his family were saved by the water. But what he was saying here is that the water separates those who are saved from those who are not saved. And for us, God promised that we would never uh, see the destruction of the world again with a global flood. So we won't be commanding any more arks to be built. But instead, he sent his son to be a savior. And as I mentioned, while God will never again destroy the world with a flood of water, he is planning to destroy it with a flood of fire. But those who are in Jesus Christ will be saved. Why? Because Christ is our ark. Because Christ is our ark, church. And through him, we stand to inherit a blessing of eternal life in the kingdom of God if we choose to allow him to become our savior. If we recognize our need for a Savior, if we know that God's word says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that sin is to produce death, but, but in the grace of God, we can be given life. So for those who believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it says when we call on that name, we shall be saved. So church, if you're in here this morning, maybe you've never called on the name of Jesus. Maybe you don't have Jesus as your ark. Maybe the destruction is coming. We look all around us and our our world is going in places I don't even want to think. 
or imagine. Our country could be on the brink of war with one of, one of the largest nuclear countries in, in the world. Jesus said, there will be a time where I will no longer dwell within the presence of man. I don't want to stand before you and scare you into heaven by any means whatsoever. But I would ask you to check your heart this morning. If you've not given your life to Christ, you can do so right now. You don't have to stand up and say these ten specific words. You have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to admit that you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. You, you say, I need you to save me, God. I need you to rescue me right here. And for those of you who have already done that, my challenge to you this morning would be, are you living a life that reflects that you've been saved by grace through faith? Are you allowing the truth to saturate your very being so that when you walk away from this building, you're an example of Christ to the people around you, to the people in your workplace, to your family? We're called, right? I say this over and over and over again. This life is not about being sinless, but it's about sinning less. Sanctification comes the closer that we get to God. And man was the wisest man in the Bible to tell us that as a man thinks in us heart, so he is. Solomon said, whatever you put in is bound to come out of you. And then Jesus repeated it, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. So church, what are, what are we putting in and what's coming out of us? Are we showing people that we've been saved by the ark? Or are we leading people to hell as we walk there? That's up to you. That's between you and God. But I want to be here as your pastor to help you walk through that. Why? Because we're all on this journey together to get closer to God. And like I was telling our prayer team this morning, we're commanded as a body of believers to strive to attain to the unity of the faith, as Paul said in, in Ephesians chapter 4. That doesn't mean that we all lean the same way. That doesn't mean uniformity, but it means that we're all moving closer to Christ together. And it's okay if somebody's in a different place spiritually than you are. We as a church need to learn to extend grace, to continue to, to be examples of grace, and to show people what it means to be saved by the ark of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we don't even have words to express the, the gratitude that we have for this, this gift that you have so sacrificed at, at a costly rate to that. God, I'm asking of you in this place to use the Holy Spirit to, to prick our hearts, God. That we would, we would be a, a people who would strive to be examples that we would be the, the Noahs of our society, of our community. God, we, we have such a great influence in, in this community with the people that we can reach and, and the people that we're connected with and our circles of influence. And so, God, I'm asking for us to be a people of truth. I'm asking for us to walk out that truth, even when it's difficult, even when we're the only ones doing it. Help us to walk out those truths. Give us strength through the Holy Spirit. And if there's anyone in here 
um, please keep your eyes closed, your heads bowed. If there is anyone in here who you feel that the Holy Spirit has been moving in you and you have not given your life over to Christ, you have an opportunity right now to call out to him. You have an opportunity to say, God, I want to give my life over to you. I believe in your son's death, burial, and resurrection. I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. If that's you in this place this morning, you can call out to him right now. Uh, you don't have to make your way to the front and say your name out loud in front of We don't want to embarrass you. But if that's you in this place, if you have decided to cry out to God, I want you to just make eye contact with me. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to bring you up front. I want you to just make eye contact with me because I want to be able to rejoice with you. I want to be able to pray with you, pray for you. If that's you all across this room, if you have cried out to God for salvation, just give me, just look right up here at me. Nobody else is looking around. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. For those of you who have prayed for salvation and are walking with Christ, my challenge is who can you come alongside? Who can you come alongside to encourage, to spur on, to love and good works? Who can you encourage this morning with your words, right? Exhort one another as long as it's called today. Encourage one another. God, we just ask for you to continue work in and through our lives. Help us to go away from here with boldness. Help us to be a witness. Not so that we can get the glory or the credit, God, but that your kingdom would get the glory, that it would be expanded, that we, we would have such a heart for people that we would not want those to go another day without knowing of the hope that we have inside of us. God, help us to be ready with an answer. Give us divine appointments in this place. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.